Welcome back, everyone. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. You're on a roll. Two great ones in as many weeks. No, I'm going to do it again. My name is Carly. That was normal. That was a pretty good one. Yeah, that was a pretty good one. Where am I going from there? I'm going (laughs) to say our names and then what do I say? I fucked you up. I fucked you up real (laughs) bad already. It's just us once again this week. That's two in a row. It's the raw, uncut shit. The just Aaron and Carly episodes coming your way. And we've got a good one today. We are talking about the 1990 sequel to Predator, aptly titled Predator 2, starring Danny Glover, Gary Busey, a couple other folks in there too who we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but, but the show is Danny Glover's this time around. There is no Arnold to speak of. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about why and how that works, I think, in this movie's favor, actually, uh, if we're really making arguments for it. But uh, 1990 here, Predator 2. Of course, the impetus for us talking about this is that uh, by the time this is released, it will be like less than 24 hours until we will get a chance to see a new Predator movie, this one called Prey, first one since... Shane Black did that awful one in 2018. I didn't see it. It was really bad. Yeah. We've talked about it on the show before, actually. I think we were talking about it during our last Boy Scout uh, episode with Trevor and Ted. Which I was not there for. Yes, you were not there for. Uh, but if you do listen back to it, there is a moment where uh, I think Trevor specifically says that it's an awful, awful movie. Uh, and I say that it has some charms and had potential. Uh, I still believe that it just it was not not well executed, not a good movie. I've heard good things about the new one. Apparently, kind of back to basics, back to form. Just you know, one character in the wilderness fighting to survive. That works for me. And I think it's what works about this movie too. Of course, the wilderness here being the urban jungle <laughs> rather than Central America, an apocalyptic Los Angeles. Yes, as many uh, early '90s movies are beset with yes all the time and like this is i think the earliest version of this that i have seen at this point now like we see a ton of these after rodney king like you know even even in like late 92 93 especially you see this kind of like sweltering heat this crime-ridden uh landscape falling down obviously has it terminator Um, 2 i think was filmed like Maybe in the middle of all that. Kind of. Termin- well, Terminator 2 was shot at the same time as this movie. One of the reasons that Arnold was not in this film. He made the decision to go and shoot uh, with James Cameron instead. Because that movie came out in 1991. Um, but I was thinking of Demolition Man. Yeah, it's kind of insane to me how many movies in the early 90s have this image of a literal like war-torn Los Angeles. It's um, weird how normalized s- it sometimes is. Sometimes used hyperbolically like you know in sort of an apocalyptic vision of the future and sometimes used to depict you know a, a, a reality in Los Angeles that was um, and like it's bizarre to me like that we all just accepted that image. Yeah. And it's like prevalence in popular culture and mass media it was it was a weird time those like bush years 
going into the Clinton years. Yeah, it's just nuts. It's nuts, nuts that we were all just like, oh, yeah, Los Angeles is a hellscape. We uh, we don't really need to do anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to say it's it's a value add to this movie because I think that it's a thing that is very much of its time. I think it's a thing that like uh, would is, is easy to criticize now looking at it in 2022, but it does offer like a perfect sort of capsule of the time period, the era, the conversations that were having being had at, at large in, in media at the time. Um, and also just like, the ramifications of a lot of the, the the Reaganite years, a lot of those politics, right? I think this movie is sort of best viewed in that lens as like an update on the Reaganite, like post-Vietnam era of Predator being turned towards the new sort of like crime-ridden urban landscape of America that was becoming like our new frontier of warfare right. in the Bush era when we didn't, when, you know, the, the the Soviet menace was waning. We were on our way toward the end of history already at this point, you know, like this is probably shot in 89, early 90, released in November of 1990. And so we needed something. And this movie, I think, finds purchase in playing with that idea that the new jungle, the new epicenter of conflict that these uh, bloodthirsty, uh, violent aliens would be looking for and be drawn to would be in the heart of one of our largest metropolitan centers in America. Yeah. That that is the new war zone is something that is, you know, an interesting statement this movie is making, but also just it's easy to look back on it now and see very clearly like why that was a political project of the American government. Mm. Um, it's still just bewildering to me that we would accept so readily that there is a war zone in our very own country where we're also supposed to believe that like everything is good and perfect and great and we're the best. It's a, I mean, it's, you know, stuff that is familiar territory for us now, but reflecting back on that time period and the prevalence of these images of Los Angeles in, in mass media, not like indie fucking films, you know, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> everywhere um, on the news and in like major blockbusters and that like we just swallowed that wholesale um, as like a reality that was reflective of like our present moment, not just a future that we were being threatened with, is nuts. Los Angeles, 1997. It's the hottest summer on record. Pollution is choking the city. The gangs control the streets. It has not been a nice day! As bad as things are, they're about to get worse. Much worse. Whoever killed him is gonna pay. I'm gonna finish it. It has almost no weight. But it cuts like steel. Incredible. Whoever did this took out four men armed with machine guns by hand. You don't know what you're dealing with. 
otherworld life forms, drawn by heat and conflict. He's on safari. Lions. Tigers. The bears. Oh my. Danny Glover. Gary Busey, Ruben Blades, Maria Conchita Alonso, Bill Paxton. Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill this Thanksgiving. We should just talk about the movie more topically for a moment. This was your very first time, Carly, I think, seeing any Predator movie. Is that right? Yes. Any Predator movie whatsoever. You had never seen the original. I don't think I knew this until we threw it on. We had suggested the movie. You had agreed to it, said that's a great idea. And I think it was not until like 15 minutes in that you even mentioned to me this. I I have never seen one of these before. Uh, And your reaction to it uh, was a lot of fun, I think, because you had no idea what the tone of the movie was going to be and what to expect from it ideal way to watch this film (laughs) like hit so much harder because I didn't know about any of the predator's abilities I hadn't really ever spent time looking at him other than you know on like posters and shit and like I should say I know enough about the predator you know franchise from it just being a very well-tread property Mm. in uh, American popular media. But I think what I told you was that I was pretty sure I had watched this movie (laughs) um, in college for a sociology class that I took about uh, incarceration. Oh, boy. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, And I didn't remember anything about the movie. I just remembered that there was a scene wherein... Danny Glover and some other guys were staring at some screens in like a mobile tactical unit. That, and you were like, that yeah, does exist. that's that's in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so you had seen it technically before. Yeah, but like I didn't remember any of it. Well, I'm glad that you got a chance to watch it this time. But it was really fun watching you watch this movie audibly screaming at certain <laughs> moments and just reacting really viscerally to... Uh, the horror elements here because it's not it's not an action movie like it, it is like full-on like uh, you know people say like a slasher film i think slasher's adequate but it, it is just kind of like a horror movie it's 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 a monster movie it's a horror movie full stop i turned to you like 20 minutes in and was like you didn't tell me this was a horror movie <laughs> and you cackled and then we kept watching like it's it it is a movie that utterly terrorized me from like five minutes in there's you know you open with a a pretty cool like shootout like war zone scene giving a a call back to the first one I would imagine Mm -hmm. but pretty quickly we find ourselves in a warehouse where like some guys hanging upside down naked just sliced the fuck open and there's blood everywhere like that's within the first five minutes of the film yeah and I was like, okay, this is like a lot, but like, we'll see where it goes. And it just escalates from there. I mean, there are several sequences that I will just say 
without getting into detail about them gave me nightmares. Like I'm not being (laughs) hyperbolic. Like that night I had nightmares. Yeah. And I think kudos. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's visceral. It's terrifying. There are like, you know, scenes of bodies stripped of their skin, hanging upside down, swinging from ceilings and rafters. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, it does something distinct and different from McTiernan's Predator from 1987. That movie kind of splits almost like sort of down the middle where it is just a bona fide action movie for a little while. It is special ops team going into the jungle, fighting some like Sandinista types in Central America, blowing shit up. It's it's commando. Uh, and, you know, just like macho guys shooting guns, and, and being very wet, as like many 80s action movies did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it turns into the slasher film we know and, and has them outmatched and outgunned by this thing that they can't see. This one does it right away. You know, we, we are 10 minutes into the movie when we start finally getting inklings of this like cloaked figure that's blasting people to pieces and, you know, shooting uh, gangbangers off of roofs. Uh, I think it's effective. I think it's it it works really well. I mean, I, I love the first Predator movie. I have a soft spot for for most Predator movies, frankly. Uh, yeah, there's just something about the way that this one opens immediately with the terror uh, and lets the story kind of unfold as it's happening. You know, it it for being one that I think gets straight into business a lot faster than the original Predator. It also is really kind of dense in its storytelling. And I don't mean like it's it's not, you know, fucking Chinatown or anything, but Right. But yeah, there's just like there's more going on. It it feels like a, like a, a richer text in terms of the way that it's setting up its story. I don't ever need to see the first predator. <laughs> so, there's that. Um I really liked that this as it was sort of murdering more <laughs> also built up relationships mm-hmm. so there's this like interesting sort of like reverse trajectory happening of like the more people that get killed the more we understand the weight of the relationships between them yeah which is an incredibly effective storytelling device mm-hmm. and one that made um the stakes escalate nicely and also lands us with sort of a lone hero in the end in a way that feels like it makes sense and not just because that's what the story needs. Yeah. And that I think is definitely one of the things about the McTiernan movie is, you know, it's incredibly entertaining. It is terrifying in moments, but it all does feel like it's it's very heavily handled to get us to the standoff between Arnold and the Predator at the end. And this one feels like it's a a, a natural byproduct of sort of the system around Danny Glover's character and and the ways in which the Predator is slowly kind of peeling off and and taking down these different characters from different affiliations throughout the movie. And the standoff between Danny Glover as the protagonist and the Predator as the antagonist feels inevitable, yes, but it also feels earned and it definitely feels like we have to work for it. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there are 
reasons that Danny Glover's intent toward this predator intensifies the longer the movie goes on. Um, And they're there from the beginning, but they, along with our understanding of what the relationships between these people mean, they also calcify um, his motivations and the circumstances around which who is actually able to take this thing on mean that he's left as the one that can. The movie has an interesting structure to it too. Like it either has an incredibly short third act or an incredibly long third act, depending on where you like see the actual break and like the, the transition kind of like point. Danny Glover's character gets to Busey and Adam Baldwin and like the feds who are like set up in their base with like the mobile command station with all the screens that you remember from college uh, and going in to try to trap and extract the predator that happens at like the 43 minute mark. So the entire last like, you know, almost full hour of the movie is just a sort of like traveling set piece from that warehouse to Danny pursuing the predator throughout the city, eventually into the sewers and then into the alien spaceship where he finally confronts him for the final time. Uh, and all of that just goes and goes and goes. It just, it, it does not stop once it starts. I basically felt the third act start from the point that you're talking about the slaughterhouse sequence Mm -hmm. and did feel like yeah there's a lot of movie but it it did not drag at all for me and I think part of that is because these set pieces are so like visceral and visually stunning and they're like architected really beautifully as well so they're gorgeous to look at and also incredibly thrilling mm-hmm. like oftentimes i feel like when there's a when there's kind of a, a crescendo of set pieces at the end of an action movie it can feel a little like handy mm-hmm. you know yeah well, it deflates the rest of the movie like it makes it feel like it's all surface and like lead up to that grand finale and you kind of like become less invested in it the longer it goes on But I think because this played with location and it played with the ways in which they were fighting and also that Danny Glover's, you know, focus shifts over the course of uh, of this last act. Like there's one point when he's not even fighting the predator. He's just trying to not fall down the fucking side of a building. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the predator isn't fighting Danny. He's patching up a wound and like fixing his weird cut off arm cauterizing an arm stump with some (laughs) like with some blue goo i really liked the the predator tech and like we we love a good gear movie i liked the goo and i liked the gear well the goo is part of the gear right it's part of his like his edc his everyday carry yeah he's just got that (laughs) that hot predator goo that hot predator blue goo to like cauterize his wounds up and close them yeah. He had like a Bunsen burner. He did. <laughs> he had what it was like a Bunsen burner, but also it looked like a, like a vegetable, like a colander yeah. as well. Like, you know, <laughs> totally. like it, it, it had that kind of like, you know, sort of like armor plated sort of thing to it. It's good design though. Like the, the creature looks good. Shout out Stan Winston. One of the greatest to ever do it. Like along with Phil Tippett, just like making all of our, our greatest dreams of uh, and come true in movies. Uh, he's the man. 
um, and, and modified the predator look from the first movie. So like it's two distinct creatures and like made this one different. He's got more kind of like spines on his face. He's got different kind of like jaws and, and claws on him. He uh, sucked. He's the, the fucking worst. Oh, they're ugly as shit. They're terrifying. And <laughs> I, I always forget him. how terrifying they are because I can like picture it in my head like the kind of like beady eyes and the dreadlocks and like the four pronged kind of mouth. But then you like see it in action and it's always more terrifying than you remember it being. Just utterly bone chilling. Yeah. And the kills are all good too. Like that, that slaughterhouse sequence is up there for me. I think I, I relate to you that what it felt most like to me and I'm certain that it's probably taking cues from this as well uh but it it feels like the sort of like first encounter that the marines have with the aliens in james cameron's movie from 1986 uh where you kind of see a lot of the violence playing out and a lot of the attack happening through their their helmet cameras and they've got their lights on and, and it's it's all sustained tension and buildup where we know that things are steadily and slowly going wrong you know in aliens we see the walls start moving before the marines notice it and in this we see the predator's perspective where he starts shifting through his various like fields of vision to be able to pick up the the lights that they're shining it's good stuff it's a very like immaculately composed set piece it's frightening uh and ends with that awesome like Gary Busey getting frisbeed in half like behind us a slab of meat they don't even have to show it no and it's gruesome as fuck yeah the tension I think is is really amped up by the fact that there are all these particles floating in the air Mm -hmm. which in the you know context of the story they're there because they have to be able to uh refract their light off of this thing so they can catch this guy right disrupts his cloaking armor it disrupts his cloaking and it it allows them to see him but it has this sort of strange like eerie snow feel to Mm -hmm. it where it's like and you're in a slaughterhouse so it's you're imagining that it's cold the other thing that is incredibly effective about that scene is the fact that they are in a slaughterhouse there is death hanging around them cows hanging from a ceiling upside down not unlike the bodies in the earlier half of the film and so you just like have this sense of of death pervading everything and like Mm -hmm. you know the the detritus of like terrible violence is already filling the screen and then it comes to fruition when you know things come to blow with the creature guy the the movie does this a couple of times like has instances where it explicitly alludes to the relationship between the predator and like mankind and our similar impulses for uh like sport killing and for sort of like this i mean violence is an easy word for it but but just like the the kind of violence it is you know that it's like this like kind of uh, normalized sort of terror. You know, we, we just like giant slabs of like slaughtered animal like hanging from hooks, right? The same way that like we're meant to be kind of repelled and frightened by the images of the predator doing this thing and stringing up like his kills. We we are 
put into a place where we do the exact same thing in a like capitalist process, like a, a hyper uh, mechanized means of doing this thing at a at a rate and level that like the monster could only dream of. The predator also has a trophy room and uh, you know keeps bone trinkets from his kills. <laughs> <laughs> he loves those bone trinkets. Uh, sometimes some skulls, sometimes some skulls with some spines attached. That's right. Depends on how he's feeling, I guess. They don't ever really explain. I mean, in the first film, he definitely pulls off uh, a head with the spinal column still attached. I guess, you know, in the in the world of the Predator, those two things just stay hooked together no, how, no matter how hard you tug, so... Yeah, it's interesting that he has this trophy room. And, you know, if we're talking about the predator having similarities to humans in some way um, and our like carnivorous tendencies, that also feels like a parallel, right? Mm -hmm. The way that we sort of keep trophies of things that we've killed, either literally in the form of taxidermy or other ways like at grocery stores, right? Yeah. Like, There's a, a scene in the movie where... Uh, Danny Glover's character Harrigan catches his reflection in the window of a taxidermist and you know it's before he kind of understands what the predator is and what it's doing and like what what the sort of like rules are of this game he's found himself in but he's looking at you know these these maimed and stuffed creatures and looking at his own his own visage in that window okay Biggest operator in East LA, 100 keys a week. Why isn't he skinned? And who are these assholes? They're Jamaicans, King Willie's boys. That doesn't make sense. This was a voodoo ritual. I've seen it all before. They took his heart out. What for? Terror tactics, man. You know, to scare the shit out of their enemies. King Willie. Who the hell is King Willie? King Willie, voodoo priest of the LA posses. Ran the terror gangs. Fred Siega in Jamaica, till he got too powerful. The Jamaican chiefs will make a move without his approval. So what the fuck happened? Shit! Hey, we got a survivor! What's she saying? I don't know, she's not making any sense. She keeps saying El Diablo vino por ellos. The devil came for them. Shit, if the Colombians did all this, then why'd they leave their boss Ramon over there hanging Tanner's girlfriend naked on the floor? Wasn't the Colombians. We got a new player in town. We've almost done a Stephen Hopkins movie on the show like three times now just by accident. Um, did the, the very famous, and I think starting to be like often reclaimed Judgment Night uh, with like Emilio Estevez and Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, more famous now probably for its soundtrack than than for the actual movie. Um, but he also did Blown Away, which is the the Tommy Lee Jones and Jeff Bridges uh, movie that, that we almost did uh, when we did The Fisher King. 
and he also uh, directed The Ghost in the Darkness, a movie uh, featuring Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas as Lion Hunters, which I briefly flirted with us doing this month in anticipation of that new Eaters Elba movie uh, with Charlotte Copley, where they, they got to fight them, the man eaters. And I think this is where we can get into a little bit of... Uh, a, a deeper analysis of this movie and its subtext. I, I will say that having just given the uh, like bona fides and resume of Stephen Hopkins as a director, I think he's a solid kind of like journeyman. He does good stuff with like what he's given. I think it should be clear that a lot of what we're going to extract and, and pull from this movie is stuff that I would argue is largely incidental. Um, and to start with, I think we should talk a little bit about what the predator is and what it represents, which we've already alluded to a little bit. You know, this idea of the predator being a reflection of ourselves and our tendencies towards violence. Uh, there is, at the very end of the first Predator movie, I will explain to you, Carly, since you have not seen it, a scene in which Schwarzenegger before landing a, a killing blow on the Predator after they've had this battle. He's, he's been uh, outmatched and outsmarted, but still gets the upper hand on the Predator at the very end, crushes him beneath the counterweight of a booby trap he's created, uh, is about to, to you know, smash him with a rock and then throws it down, sees him like, you know, coughing up his, his glow-in-the-dark, like, uh, rave blood. And... Arnold asks the creature, what the hell are you? And the creature responds back in English, maybe just mimicking him, who knows, but asks the question back and says, what the hell are you? And, you know, several interpretations of that, I'm sure. But the one that seems the most convincing to me is the notion that Arnold is looking at a reflection of himself in that moment, that we are looking at uh, American anxieties of imperialism, of all of these wars that we fought, of like the the Reagan era and and this era of you know like post Vietnam kind of like wishing for victory. It's it's coming to an end. It's coming to a close, and we're recognizing the catastrophe of all of that to an extent. Uh, so this movie, I think, is in the same vein that turned inward, right? It's those same imperialist tendencies turned toward crime in Los Angeles, towards policing. Yeah, I think that's a really solid read. A vision of a creature that is technologically advanced, adept at combat, warfare, seeks out conflict, and uh, is incredibly carnivorous. <laughs> I don't think it's a stretch to say like, that's us. Um, and this is perhaps where we get into, you know, the distinction between the Capitolocene and the Anthropocene, right? Which is like, is that human nature or is that human nature under capitalism? Mm -hmm, right. Uh, I'd argue that it's the latter. Yeah. I mean, it seems clear that it is a reflection of and a manifestation of the imperial tendencies of capitalism, right? That we are uh, looking at a reflection of ourselves and really maybe like the apex of like what we can, what we can become when those imperialist tendencies become sort of like the, the guiding 
focus of all of our exploits, you know, worldwide, galactically, whatever those things look like. Um, there's, you know, this interesting kind of idea at the heart of like the predator mythology that as we begin to learn here, he's hunting for sport the same way we have in the past. There's sort of like uh, imperialist, but like also like colonialist kind of tendency, right? This, this sort of like big game hunting kind of narrative. Uh, but that there's this sort of like weird sense of like honor around it that the creature seems to embody. We see on multiple occasions and see this in the first movie to some extent too. He doesn't, it doesn't harm someone who's not armed. Uh, it, it refuses to harm a pregnant character in this movie. Like all it's looking for is the thing that is, that offers the most sport, the thing that offers the biggest threat to it. So I, I think in that, obviously there is like this, you know, it, it, it part of it that's like, it's looking for an enemy. And I think that that's like the, the, the guiding point to kind of explore here with predator two, which is like, we do the same thing, right? What we, we are literally doing that with gang violence, with crime, right? Like that in the absence of some sort of like grander arc and narrative of, and, and mythology around like our conflict, we have to manufacture one. And oftentimes it's just like, you know, people in desperate situations and circumstances that we've created here on domestic soil, uh, fighting for like a small piece of what they can get. Right. And, and, and that all of a sudden becomes our new war and we treat it with this same sense of like moral authority and, and it gives it purchase and gives us the, the meaning behind it to like, say, we have to approach that thing with all the, the full force of the law with, with all the capacity that we can muster because it's our great fight because it's the biggest challenge that we can find. Yeah. And we can treat the populations that live in those war zones as alien, right? Um, make them refugees in their own country. Mm -hmm. The business of America doesn't exist in peacetime, like point blank. It mm -hmm. just doesn't. Right. There's a, term that gets thrown around in politics sometimes it was more prevalent i think in the 80s and 90s um than it is now and the term is peace dividend and it's this idea that um when we are not at war there is a dividend there is a surplus only we aren't ever okay with a surplus of things right so um you know, related to another film we were talking about earlier in Falling Down, we talked about how, uh, you know, large population of uh, defense contractors and people that sort of worked in and around that um, industry uh, suddenly found themselves without jobs because we were technically at peace, finger quotes. And so it's interesting to think about us as not just a sort of national identity project but also as an economic project needing an enemy at all times yeah domestic internationally all of the above space you name it mm -hmm. <laughs> like um and and definitely you know in the 90s when we were uh in this finger quotes peace dividend 
we weren't globally. Many populations were in peril because precisely because we were at peace on domestic soil. Um, but we weren't, right? Like at the very top of the show, we talk about how prevalent the image of a war-torn Los Angeles is yeah. in the 90s. Um, so, you know, and that's by design, right? How much of a peace dividend could there be if there were large swaths of the country that were um, in complete peril? And and that that is necessary for us to organize around as a country. That the existence of that that war the existence of that war zone is part of what animates and stimulates our political motives and our economic ones. 100% agree with all of that. I I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the most interesting moments in the movie to me, which is after uh, Danny Glover's character has defeated the Predator and he is immediately surrounded by, you know, half a dozen more of these of these creatures. First time we've seen more than one in the movie. We We you know, have to assume that there is more than one given the fact that we've now seen two, but we've never seen them collectively like this. Uh, and they show up for a moment uh, just to collect the body of their like fallen comrade. And one of the predators, ostensibly the leader, draws from his belt uh, a trophy and throws it to Danny Glover and says, keep it. And it's like a flintlock pistol engraved with a name it looks like a a, what i assume is like an italian or a spanish name or something i can't remember exactly the name on it but but from the 1700s right 1715 i think is the the year on it and i think that this moment one opens up the mythology of like the idea of the predator in a cool way right it's just like topically just interesting world building the idea that oh these predators have been coming here for you know, generations now and always hunting us. But I think it speaks to something even more kind of like dour than that when you think about it. I think it's the exact same kind of like demystifying and like demythologizing of the American project and and sort of like just imperialism in general uh, in the same way that that moment at the end of the first Predator is, that what the hell are you line. Uh we come to realize, you know, that the predator hunt us for sport because they see us as this great threat, right? Like not, not a great threat, rather a great competition, sort of. We're, we're violent. We are capable of this manner of, you know, severe conflict. We have these weapons. And regardless of how advanced we see ourselves regardless of how sort of like beyond maybe the most like violent and caustic parts of our collective history these predator in that moment of like gifting this trophy of this pistol are saying you all haven't changed that you still have this mind for conquest you still have this bloodlust it's just taken a new shape it's it's framed in a slightly different way but you all are the same type of people you were when you when you were the conquistadors uh and i think that that moment is pretty profound when you look at it that way i i, I love 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 that moment in this movie 
Sir, the cop is back. Harrigan! Don't you show up in the damnedest places. Come here, Lieutenant. I got something you might find interesting. What is this? How many times do I have to tell you? You don't know what you're dealing with. There's your killer. Wonderful, isn't it? Pheromone signature left by his body. These are scent molecules. Punch up three. Ten years ago, one of his kind stalked and eliminated an elite special forces crew in Central America. There were two survivors. They indicated that when trapped, the creature activated a self-destruct device that destroyed enough rainforest to cover 300 city blocks. Remarkable weaponry. That's right, Lieutenant. Other world life forms. Huh? A fucking alien. Iwo Jima, Cambodia, Beirut, drawn by heat and conflict. He's on safari. Lions, the tigers, the bears. Oh, my. Trophies. That's the game, isn't it, Keys? You're the lion. This is his jungle. So why can't we see him? Defensive adaptations are astounding. It's somehow able to bend light. It's the perfect camouflage. You admire the son of a bitch. Not what he does, Lieutenant. For what he is. For what he can give us. A new era of scientific technology. I've waited a lifetime for this, and I'm not going to miss the chance. Another minor thing I want to mention, because I do think it's worth mentioning, is that these movies in the late 80s and early 90s kind of saturate popular culture with the term predator Mm. in a way that I don't think had happened really before that point. Um, And so this idea of, you know, a menace that uh, we fight abroad and then uh, ultimately at home and that menace being termed a predator is an interesting one only in the sense that I don't think it's a coincidence that then this term starts to pop up in the vernacular of politicians with regards to the finger quotes crime wave. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the most famous of which that I can think of is Hillary Clinton's like super predator comments, right? The idea of these young children who are, you know, the most vicious and violent gangbangers and the ones who like we need to watch out for it. It, again, is like part of the thing that it feels like this movie is kind of critiquing in, you know, in, in an incidental way or in a deliberate one. But the necessity for an enemy, right? That fascistic tendency that we have to like create something that not only is like a constant threat and fear, but has like a sort of like morality around our opposition to it. So like by, by making it a predator, all of a sudden we create this fantasy that this enemy, this enemy that we have here domestically, that is our, you know, our, our own populace, that all of a sudden that is some sort of like ordained right for us to like 
to destroy these populations or to fight them or to like get this under control. Um, you know, we, we've talked about some other movies. It's, it's not unlike stuff that we've talked about before with, uh, like Starship Troopers and what Verhoeven satirizing in that, right. That like we step outside of our areas of the galaxy and inadvertently wander into like the backyard of, creatures that we don't understand that are bigger than us and can kill us. And all of a sudden that means they are the bad guys and we imbue them with this sense of like grandeur and, and danger and, and viciousness to them. There's this sort of like we build a narrative of their own sort of conceits that makes it good and righteous for us to fight and kill those things. Something else that's incidental, but I think notable is that, Within the landscape of the film, there are these two rival gangs, the Colombians, Colombians and uh, these Jamaican drug lords, the kingpin of which is a one King Willie, who has yes. but a few moments in this film, and, and they are <laughs> spectacular. He's awesome he's so rad yeah it's like one of my favorite performances in the movie he gets one scene uh it's badass it, it ends in like a really brutal way like a great kind of like match cut where you see his his uh uh severed head in the hand of the predator but he's he's incredible yeah i was holding my breath for every moment he was speaking yeah <laughs> um so there are these two rival gangs and there are, you know, groups of sort of feckless police that are are trying to manage the situation. But it becomes clear over the course of the film that there is a third gang that exists in the form of incredibly powerful and high up police officers um, in, in the Los Angeles P Police Department and their partnership with an intelligence agency mm -hmm. of some sort. Uh, I think it's incidental, but it is worth noting that all of these highly powerful men in this third gang are white. Yes. Um, and, and I don't think that the film is like saying stuff about that, <laughs> but I do think that it's interesting that, they are kind of handled in the context of the story as a third axis of power. Yeah. Um, and, and very much operate extrajudicially the way that the gangs do. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that Danny Glover is the one person that seems to be able to navigate between and around all three of them. Yeah, his character, Harrigan, is like really important. We haven't talked about him too much. Um, there's a thousand things to say about him. One, I think it's fascinating that like they went from, you know, this super muscular, hyper macho lead in like Schwarzenegger and putting around him people like Jesse Ventura and Bill Duke and Carl Weathers and like all of these like, you know, big men who are you know, like you know sweating in the jungle and transitioning that to Danny Glover uh but I still think that he has 
in his character so much like more richness as a protagonist to offer than the others do. Like there, there is a lot being spoken even without Danny, you know, being as great as he is in this movie and looking exasperated and like feeling out of breath all the time and shouting basically every single one of his lines. There's like, obviously like the, the most obvious thing, which is he's, a black cop in Los Angeles and seemingly like one of the few ones who's like really good at his job, but also operates outside of the rules and wants to like do things extrajudicially to get the job done. Right. Um, I, I don't know where I'm going with this exactly, except to say that like, I think his character is fascinating and I love that he is the person in the lead in a predator follow-up specifically one set where this one is. And I would imagine it's because they do need to give him a lot more to do. And he has to have personal relationships in this film. And I just like can't see that with Arnold, right? Um, I can't I can't imagine that Arnold feels strongly about a partner that he's worked with for 15 years where they came up on the streets together. Um, I do believe that coming from Danny Glover. And I do believe... Uh, that these interpersonal relationships that propel him forward in the story are real and substantive for him. And that's why I think it's important that it's that it's Danny mm. and uh, and not another protagonist. And also that Danny's really good with dialogue and um, he's good at navigating more serious tones and also like, lighter hearted line deliveries and there's a ton of that in this film he has to deliver lines with exigency and he also has to like you know shoot off these like one-liners that we get that I love by the way um in a lot of these you know 90s action films where it's like jokes about I don't know Alex Trebek or whatever who knows like <laughs> I like the part when he calls the predator pussy face yeah uh, because right. I, I don't know if you notice it but like they they literally do like give the predator at a certain point in this like the way he's designed like his mouth looks like an open vagina mm. <laughs> um, I had to look away oftentimes when his raw fucking face was on the screen because right. it's so visceral and terrifying <laughs> Uh, I I will take your word for it that he has a pussy mouth. He has a pussy mouth. Danny Glover gets in the the good crack right before he like cuts his arm off. Uh, here's a fun little trivia fact for you that as we're talking about, you know, someone who can handle being like uh, a streetwise character with all these like deep relationships with like his partner and other people on the force. Uh, very briefly, uh, Steven Seagal was being tapped <laughs> to play the protagonist here. Yes. Yeah, so instead of getting this, he went on to, uh, you know, seek justice for uh, his partner, Bobby Lupo, in in that film. I'm fucking like this. Yes, exactly. I the the little bit that I've read about it sounds fascinating. Seagal had, of course, a bunch of ideas about the character, uh, wanted him to be like a martial arts expert. And <laughs> like there was some <laughs> other like weird thing. It was like. Also, like a, it, it was like, oh, oh, what if he was like a, I don't know, like a sardine fisherman or something? Like, it wasn't that, but it was something <laughs> okay. like that, where it's like your backstory is literally just like coming up with like a weird job that this guy can do, like on the side, besides being a cop. What a kook. What a kook. What a kook that um, guy is. Anyway, I, I think both movies are better uh, for, for them having their respective leads in this case. 
One last thing I want to bring up is the aesthetics of this film. I think we've talked a little bit about the fact that um, the action sequences are architected beautifully, that it's a gory film, um, and that uh, it's visually stunning. Specifically, I want to mention the sort of stylizing of the future that this movie posits yeah it's it's a so it's a pseudo 1997 which is the future in this movie they wanted to set it 10 years after the events of the first movie for whatever reason yeah and 10 years makes sense because it's enough time to have passed for things to become horrifying but uh it's still a city that we semi-recognize right so they're able to use the streets of los angeles and you know build some like weird towers around stuff um but I'm thinking specifically of the fact that there's a scene wherein Danny Glover is like walking through some traffic and all of the cars are like mid-century models. And after that scene, I started to pay attention to his clothes more than I had prior to that point. And he's basically in like a 50s style suit yeah, and hat. Like, not a joke. Like, no, he's it, got like suspenders and like big pleated pants and like Dick Tracy colors. Like, it's it's very interesting. The fit is an incredibly mid-century fit for a man's suit, and you know, I I don't I don't know where that decision came from or or if uh you know that was done to sort of like evoke an idea of a future without having to actually design an entire world um, and build a bunch of shit like they do in Demolition Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't even necessarily like have to believe for the purposes of the film that we are in a future. Like that's not required for the story to feel realized. Right. But I just found that really interesting and I think it's kind of a, cool way to communicate that time has passed and also that like things have somehow come back around to something that feels uh, a little bit more retrogressive um and lastly I'll add that the main set pieces of the film that take place in almost all cases in sort of big enclosed structures in the beginning of the film there's like a warehouse where there's like lots of coke stuff happening (laughs) the uh scene after that where we see things that gave me nightmares uh is a penthouse um with you know high ceilings and rafters there's the slaughterhouse scene um and then there's the spaceship at the end of the film which is this this big open space as well um, and I just really liked that th- these m- moments of, uh, incredible conflict, um, are kind of contained in these big spaces where the production crew is able to fill the space with stuff, um, but also that there's room to move so that these literal acrobatics 
of these set pieces can take place and and feel real and weighty and um and tactile yeah it gives all of those scenes also like room for the predator to move around and hide in you know like he's up high and then he's you know behind something and it it just allows for those worlds to kind of live within themselves and for them to become their own sort of battlegrounds in each little section within the film. I love that. I guess the last thing that I want to cover is uh, just a little bit about the release of this new Predator movie that's happening, as I mentioned uh, within the next 24 hours of this being released. It really just depends on uh, how early I wake up tomorrow, uh, whether Woof. or not this will be uh, out like 24 hours in advance of that movie being released or like on the day of when you can go and watch it right after this. It's fine either way. Whatever. But so this new movie is getting dumped onto Hulu exclusively. It is not seeing any theatrical release one cool thing about it is that they have made two versions that you can watch, one of which that is uh, the English language version of this film, uh, the other which is a full dub in the uh, Cherokee language. It is featuring a large portion of an, an indigenous cast. It's set in uh, the early like 1700s, I think, around that same time that that pistol comes from. And yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting to, to be able to like provide that opportunity with a streaming service, the one benefit of it, but ultimately too, it feels like kind of a cop out from the studio. It feels like we're not getting like a real predator movie out of it, despite the fact that this one feels like it, I mean, it looks good. It looks like it it's back to basics. It looks interesting. I want to see it. And while I'm happy that like I don't have to go out to a theater to see it right now because like I'm not really doing that. You know, there's a lot of reasons I'm choosing not to do that COVID stuff, but it is a movie that feels like it could get asses in seats. It feels like the sell of it's a predator movie. It's going back to basics. It's a character in the wilderness fighting a fucking predator and the period trappings of it also make it slightly novel like th this is something to me that should sell and it feels weird to see stuff like this going straight to streaming um there was some some tweets going around from someone you know kind of arguing that it's it's not a bad thing it's actually like a, a great bold leap forward for the opportunities for uh more streaming services to just make endless uh genre pieces for us i don't think that's correct i don't i do not think that that's what's happening here i think that it's just kind of blatantly studio cowardice. Uh, and I, and I wish it wasn't, I wish that there was an opportunity to see something like this, like on a screen big enough to like give it its due. More and more. It just feels like the profit motive is so extreme and the stakes are so high with movies these days. And it's still an industry that I think has failed to evolve and respond to the changes that have come about not just in like our media consumption habits but you know in what the consumer landscape looks like people's appetite to go to theaters um and and also that 
more and more things have become dominated by a few franchises at the top yeah. of everything. And um, and that's not to say that there aren't smaller films being made and released, but I think that the landscape is just such, such a caustic one that studios are just really unwilling to take any sort of a risk and as you said i don't even think this feels like a real risk it's just like not a marvel movie right yeah um but it's a tentpole like it is a movie that has this is what the fifth standalone predator movie like without also throwing the xenomorphs into it you know at this point like it it it's an easy sell for people <laughs> like it, it should be at least yeah i also think this is one where I could see there being a lot of interesting narrative stuff to explore around like a really violent force coming into an indigenous like landscape. Like that seems like ripe territory. This is exactly what I was going to mention is that this also feels like for the first time since Predator 2, the movie seems to understand not just the compulsion of like the the most basic premise of it, which is, you know, an alien creature hunting down human beings, humans having to fight back to survive, but that there is a context around the idea of imperialism, the India the idea of settler colonialism. And like in this case, you know, how how does a, a predator function when it is uh, attacking and killing in an in indigenous population? Does it still become a specter of that settler colonial tendency? Uh, like, like, what's the message there? I don't know that the movie is going to actually play around with that, but just by virtue of its premise alone, it seems to be conjuring up, you know, the, 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 the willingness to at least consider that like subtextual level, which none of the other movies since this one have done. I will be fine having never seen any other Predator movie and this just being the only one that I see because okay. it fucking rules. Yeah, it rocks. Um, I, I, if if nothing else, like that's that's our message all the time with these movies, right? Just go and see this one. Predator 2 fucking rules. Uh, it gets a bad rap. I, you know, I, I have seen already more than a, a few headlines and tweets about the new movie quote being like, the best one since the original. And I feel like that's really underselling how good predator two is. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, in, in the collective consciousness, it, it is not as valued as it should be. I think that it is a kind of minor, uh, early nineties action masterpiece with a lot more going on and a lot more in its head than people give it credit for. Yeah. And it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> Like it's effective. It's good. It's sorry, good at what but it like, does. I can't remember the last film I saw that truly gave me nightmares, actual <laughs> nightmares. <laughs> and this one did. And, um, and it was also really just like thrilling to look at. Go track it down. Check it out. Also watch Prey, I guess. We're not getting paid to say any of that. <laughs> Hulu, Fox, get at us if you want that paid promotion, whatever. I'll probably see that. 
Why not? It, it's low stakes at this point, right? We've, yeah. <laughs> we've got a Hulu subscription. We can we can turn it on and watch it. it there's there's no reason not to, uh, except for the fact that like it would be kind of cool to go see it in theater. Uh, but we'll we'll almost certainly be watching it and, and reporting back afterward. Um, probably no like bonus content on it or anything like that. But if I have enough thoughts about it, I'm sure I'll share them online. Um, where you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod, and uh, you can also subscribe to the show for biweekly bonus episodes and other bonus content at Patreon.com/HitFactoryPod. Shout out to our overlords; their names are Linda and Jesse K. And uh, we bid you adieu for now, and we'll catch you all the next time. Thanks, everybody.